This week, the comics guys explain pastiche superheroes. Hello and welcome everyone. This week we will be going over pastiches, uh, like the man with the big voice said. <laughs> so, a couple of caveats though. This week we are only focusing on the big two, that is Marvel and DC. Right. We will, down the road a little bit, do uh, another episode with parodies of Marvel and DC heroes from other companies and vice versa. Um, well, that doesn't happen nearly as often. Um, so this time we'll be talking about what happens when uh, you want to use a character from DC, but you work at Marvel and the opposite of way around. So Darren, take us away. Uh, when do we see the first, you know, what is the first pastiche? The first ones we can find, the first ones I've been able to find for it, definitely kind of fall on the side of parodies. They're joke appearances, right? Um, and whether or not they're actually kind of like in canon is kind of a borderline question, right? The first ones uh, historically that I can find where Marvel is uh, making fun of DC and vice versa is in a DC series called The Inferior Five. And The Inferior Five okay. was definitely a comedy series uh, in the mid-1960s, started in 1966. In, and it was about uh, a superhero team who were all really lame they had, uh, you know, terrible powers. They were all the children of like more famous superheroes, and so they kind of like felt this responsibility to be part of a team and go out and fight crime. But they were terrible at fighting crime, and it's a very, it's very much got to that kind of like mid '60s sitcom kind of feel, right? Like it's the the lead character both looks and sounds like Woody Allen. Um, okay. and they do a lot of kind of, you know, like the kind of like get smart, would you believe joke, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, so they're a superhero team and they have kind of been confirmed in multiple places in DC as having, uh, being part of the multiverse, right? Like their adventures took place on earth 12. Okay. So since they are kind of Canon, the first time you see a DC writer a dc comic making fun of marvel um is when the inferior five meet a goofy marvel character the first one they actually meet is in showcase number 63 in july of 66 where among the problems they deal with that issue is a genius scientist named brute brainerd uh who is accidentally exposed to phi beta kappa radiation and turns into a giant monster okay so it's pretty clear you know that's that's their full first kind of like hulk reference right, right. is uh you know, and then in issue number 65, uh, they actually are hired by the uh, powerful telepath Dean Egghead uh, to come be teachers at his Academy for Superheroes. Uh, mm -hmm. And all the students at his Academy for Superheroes are known as the Eggsmen. Uh, and so they are all, you know, very obvious uh, references to each of the individual X-Men. You have Basilisk and uh, Levitation Lass and the Ape. And Icarus, and my personal favorite, Winter Wonderlad, which I think is—I I genuinely think that's actually funny. He should use that as like a you know a sub a subtitle for one of his uh, you know Iceman, the Winter Wonder for an Iceman story, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and the gag of the you know since they don't make any reference to them being mutants, the joke that keeps getting referred to is that they're throwbacks, they're ge they're ge uh, genetic throwbacks, right? Ooh. They're atavists. Okay, so the and so they're mutants. 
Right. They're not technically mutants. So they like they meet the ape and it's very clear that he's kind of like a, you know, he's he's part gorilla, right? Like he's the their beast version of him. Mm -hmm. And then we meet Icarus, who is the angel ripoff, and Dean Egghead kind of explains, well, he's a very unusual throwback to the birds. <laughs> uh, but Dean Egghead, humans aren't descended from birds. I know that's what makes him so unusual, right? Like that's the level of humor that's in this series. Well, that kind of dig a lot of me, so <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they face the, while they're teaching these, uh, you know, terrible kids to, uh, use their superpowers, they also meet, uh, the Brotherhood of Evil mutants, of course, who are the fraternity of atavistic no goodniks or fan, you know, as an acronym. So I can't think of a more sixties word than no goodniks. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that was written by, uh, 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 E. Nelson Bridwell, actually with Mike Sikowski doing the art. Um, and so that's kind of like the first time there's any kind of a reference at all that DC even kind of acknowledges the existence of Marvel is when they're making fun of them in this, in this series. Um, in 1966, you also see uh, when Marvel was doing these kind of like little uh, mini books that would be included in like gumball machines. Uh, they would have these little tiny sized books that would, you know, uh, be inside like a plastic container and you would like open the container and then it would uh, unfold into like a little eight page mini comic, basically. Hmm. Um, and the Spider-Man, one of those uh, actually has Superman in it as a joke. They're making fun of him. He goes like flying by and takes credit for something that Spider-Man did or something, hmm. um, which I think technically is one of the earliest uh, appearances as well. Those things are, you know, if you can find one of those gumball machine pieces, uh, you know, like actually in decent condition or whatever for that, they're worth a fortune um, as collector's items. Uh, Marvel kind of like takes the, the first time they actually kind of like take seriously the idea of like making fun of the DC characters is they did a humor series themselves in 1967 that was called Not Brand Eck. And uh, in that, the they frequently would make fun of other comic book characters, not just DC, then uh, not brand Eck number two. Uh, we have Natman and Rotten uh, as the two, uh, you know, like heroes that they have to, the heroes have to deal with. That same issue also has the Blunder Agents and Magnet ro uh, Robot Fighter. So they were kind of, you know, firing cannons in all directions from, from that series. <laughs> uh, they make fun of Superman in issue number seven, who is, you know, of course called Superman, that kind of thing. So. Uh, so none of those really count. I don't really count those as the pastiche characters because they're really just mockeries, right? They're really just kind of making fun of them. The first serious story in which we have DC and Marvel kind of doing pastiche versions of each other is in Avengers number 69, which comes out in October of 69. And in that story, uh, Kang and the Grandmaster are having a contest. Uh, the Grandmaster basically, Kang turns to Grandmaster to get help for his poor, sickly wife who is in a coma. She has a terrible disease, and even Kang's super science can't cure her. Right. And Grandmaster says he will use his powers to save her, uh, but only if Kang participates in this contest with him. And so the Grandmaster will provide a team and the Kang will provide a team and they will fight each other. And then the winner uh, of this contest will get what, what they want. And so if Kang wins, Grandmaster has to save his wife's life. And if Grandmaster wins, he gets to take over the earth. Okay. Uh, and so 
yeah, except why Kang is able to bet the Earth is not really <laughs> fully explained, but sure, okay. So Kang uh, basically nominates the Avengers as his team, right? Like he gets the Avengers to like go, you know, save him. Basically saying, if you don't do this, then Grandmaster is going to take over the Earth. Whereas all I'm trying to do is save my, you know, my wife's life, right? Like, so if you help me, that's a, that's a good outcome. Whereas if I lose this contest, uh, Grandmaster takes over the Earth and that's bad. So that's why you want to help me. Uh, and so Grandmaster pits two different teams against the Avengers uh, it, over the course of two stories. There's like two rounds of this fight, right? Um, and in one of the rounds, they fight the, the team that will eventually become the invaders, right? Like half the team is sent back to World War II and has to fight Captain America and Submariner and the original Human Torch. And it, that's the first time the invaders ever appear. The other half of the team gets sent to an alternate Earth and basically winds up fighting an evil version of the Justice League. Uh, and this is the Squadron Sinister. And so uh, Grandmaster has kind of like recruited these, you know, these four villains who look remarkably like uh, Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, and The Flash. They are respectively, we've got Hyperion, who is Superman, right. Nighthawk, who is Batman. Uh, Dr. Spectrum, who is Green Lantern, and the Wizard, who is Flash. Mm -hmm. And so each of these, uh, you know, villains fights one of the Avengers in an interesting location. Uh, they're like each, each one takes place at some interesting place on Earth, like Captain America is fighting Nighthawk at the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and so we have these different battles. And in the course of the fights, I mean, each one only lasts a few pages. But we learn little kind of like joke bits about the bad guys, right? Like Hyperion tells his origin to Thor as they're fighting each other. And Hyperion, of course, was rocketed here to our Earth from another planet uh, that was being destroyed, exactly like Superman's. Except in Hyperion's case, he's from a, a planet in the microverse, uh, not in outer space. Mm -hmm. And his planet was destroyed when the, their atom was split by a human scientist. And that's why he turned evil instead of being a good guy like Superman is, because he wants revenge on the humans who destroyed his planet by accident without even knowing that it was a planet. That's kind of cool. So it's like, okay. On the, on the Superman. That's like, I, I see why you put this as the first move away from parody into prestige. That's actually sort of adding to the sort of adding to or or changing the mythos enough that you you know not enough that it's not the same character anymore but enough that it is actually creating a, a right it's putting a spin on it yeah. right and like kind of like trying to make it fit into that world but also coming up with a new explanation for why he's bad instead of good right mm -hmm. like it's you know it's a, it's an interesting character bit um yeah. similarly to uh that same kind of joke appears uh the wizard uh is the one who is he's, he's fighting goliath right mm -hmm. Uh, and so he explains that he took his name from a World War II superhero who he read a comic book about, which is basically the same thing Barry Allen did, right? right. Like, because in, you know, on Earth 1, all of the Earth 2 characters are comic book characters. And so Barry Allen had read comics about Jay Garrick and took his name from the Jay Garrick Flash. In this case, uh, the Wizard takes his name from the Golden Age Wizard, who was, in fact, a Marvel character during the golden age, right? So it's like we've, he's tied himself in to, you know, like the official continuity as well. Is the wizard with the invaders at this point uh, in the, in no, no. Okay. No, he's not yet. Okay. 
this is before the invaders ever got a series or anything. Yeah. So like the the golden age wizard has not made a comeback yet, right? right this right. is 1969. So, but obviously it's written by Roy Thomas who absolutely knew about the golden age wizard, yeah, right? And fully it. intended at some point he was going to get around to bringing him back, right? So so uh, all of those fights happen. Captain America beats Nighthawk. Iron Man beats Dr. Spectrum. Thor beats Hyperion. And then the Goliath Wizard fight is accidentally a scrub because uh, Black Knight sees them fighting and like joins in, not really clear on what's happening, and basically kind of like cheats on the side of the Avengers by like adding in somebody who shouldn't have been in the fight. So that's, a, that's like a disqualification. And they have to like, you know, that's kind of like the plot. Uh, so anyway, this, this story happens, uh, in the end, the Avengers are victorious and Kang gets what he wants. Ravana, his wife comes back to life and, you know, the grandmaster disappears and ta-da, we're done. Uh, the whole thing is wrapped up in three issues, but it is, a, and the squadron sinister only really appear in kind of the middle issue, right? It's, they're only there basically to have this joke of the Avengers fighting some superheroes from an alternate earth, right? Um, but that comic was really well received. Everybody loved the joke. Everybody thought it was, you know, really kind of like sweet to see and was really psyched to see Superman fight Thor. All of this stuff was really interesting and, and they, they very much wanted to see him. But they got letters saying, well, it kind of sucks that you made them bad. Right? Like it's why did why did our Justice we love the Justice League? Why were why did you make the Justice League evil in this comic? We should I would love to see a version like this where they were actually good guys. And Roy Thomas, being no dummy, uh, sees how well that sold. And literally like a year later, uh, in the beginning of 1971, goes back to this joke again. And this time the Avengers are running around in alternate worlds anyway. They're in some other dimensions because they had to go to Archon's home world for a reason. And they're trying to teleport back to Earth. And instead, the Vision, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch wind up not making it back to our Earth. First, they appear on an Earth uh, as kind of ghosts. And they see the world being destroyed. And they don't know why or how, but the sun has gone nova. And the planet is melting and everything is on fire and it's terrible and people are dying all around them. And then they like keep materializing, traveling backwards in time so that when they actually become solid on this world, uh, it's a couple of days before the end of the world, right? Like the, the, the dates have, have been clear. They look in the, you know, in the newspaper and see that it's a couple of days before when they first arrived. And they're like, holy crap, we have to save the world. The world is going to be destroyed in like two days. Boom, we better get off to Avengers Mansion and, you know, like meet up with the rest of the team and figure out a way to save the world. Mm -hmm. Except they are, of course, now on like Earth squadron right they're on they're on a different planet a uh, different version of earth so when they get to avengers mansion they find that it has it's been replaced by the squadron supreme headquarters the squadron sinister have changed their name to the squadron supreme and now they're the good guys and this is their world this is kind of like you know the dc uh world of parallel earths from marvel uh so we get to meet a bunch more of the team Right. Uh, that since we'd only met the four of the members of the, of the Squadron Sinister, we also get to meet uh, American Eagle, who is their version of Hawkman, Tom Thumb, who is their version of the Atom, Lady Lark, who is their version of Black Canary, and Hawkeye, who is their version of Green Arrow. Mm -hmm. 
And before you say, hang on a second, there's already a Hawkeye, remember that at this point in Avengers history, Clint Barton is not Hawkeye. He's Goliath. This is during the stretch that he was using Hank Pym's Pym particles to become a giant and had given up being Hawkeye. So the name was not being used at the time. So Roy Thomas thought it would be a nice little kind of twist to have the Green Arrow character from another universe be also using the name Hawkeye as kind of like a, so that, you know, we could have the reference of, uh, you know, that this is still a good name for an archer, right? Absolutely. I always kind of felt like when I was reading the Goliath stories that they, they really felt like that was going to be like the new status quo for Clint Barton for like from then on. So that makes sure. Yeah. Yeah. They had no reason to believe he'd ever go back. Right. Mm -hmm. And he won't go back for another couple of years. It's not until, uh, you know, after the pre-scroll war that he gets his, uh, his bow back. So anyway, they have a fight, of course, because of like a complete misunderstanding. There's, you know, they wonder why these guys are in Avengers Mansion, and the Squadron Supreme wonders why these guys have just busted into their headquarters. But eventually, they straighten it out, and the Avengers say, "We've been to your future." You know, two days from now, the Earth is going to be destroyed, and so they basically team up to save the day. They discover that there is this uh, mutant super genius called Brainchild, <laughs> who's like 12 years old and has like a gigantic, you know, swollen head brain kind of thing and is the smartest boy on earth. Uh, and he is building the first uh, uh, interstellar spaceship uh, for them to use. And of course, he is, he's actually evil. He's actually uh, miserable in his situation of being, you know, this kind of like mutant freak child. And he just wants to commit suicide and bring the earth with him. So his rocket ship is secretly a missile that's going to be aimed at the sun to cause the sun to go supernova. And so the teams have to like team up to save the day and they do. And then eventually they figure out, you know, how to return vision and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver to the correct earth. So, we have now established the existence of, you know, a, of an alternate Justice League of the Squadron Supreme being on this alternate Earth. We don't see those guys again for a few years. It's uh, actually the end of 1975 before they come back. Uh, Steve Englehart and George Perez use them as part of the great Kang epic that they're running uh, over the course of like nine or ten months. It's almost a year-long story in the in the middle of the Avengers. Um, and in that story, uh, the Serpent Crown uh, is used to uh, take over uh, President Nelson Rockefeller on the Earth, on the, the DC Earth, right? Like on the Squadron's uh, version of Earth. And all of the uh, Serpent Crowns on different alternate versions of Earth can communicate with each other. So they are trying to join up and form one gigantic serpent crown and take over the entire multiverse. And so a whole bunch of stuff happens. But at that point, basically, the good guy Squadron Supreme are being mind controlled by the serpent crown. And that's the excuse for them to fight uh, the Avengers. And so we get a full team of Avengers and a full team of uh Squadron Supreme battling each other uh, over the course of this kind of like epic, basically. And in the end, Scarlet Witch straightens it out and destroys the Serpent Crown, and the, the day is saved. Uh, the Hyperion, both versions of Hyperion, then show up in a Thor story, uh, both the good one and the bad one, because they look completely identical, right? And in that one, we, we learn how, in fact, the Squadron Sinister got formed. 
because it turns out that in the very first story, the, the origin story, basically, of the Squadron Supreme, it's that the Grandmaster gathered them together as like the heroes of this earth and used them as his pawns in yet another competition against yet another bad guy who turned out to be the Scarlet Centurion. And that was the first time most of these heroes had met each other and they be basically became friends and decided to stay together as a team. Um, the Grandmaster thought they were a great team. They helped him win against the Scarlet Centurions. But the problem was that uh, they were too much good guys. They were too goody-goody and wouldn't do the necessary things to win a game that Grandmaster wanted them to do. If there was a situation where they had to cheat and lie and do whatever in order to win, Grandmaster wanted them to do that. So he didn't want heroes of them. He wanted evil versions of those guys to be his team. So that's why he created the Squadron Sinister. And that's why we have these two different teams. Uh, in the early 80s, J.M. Demetis and Don Perlin are writing the Defenders. And Demetis, like, keep his name in your head because he's going to show up over and over again in this, uh, in this cast because he really loves this joke, right? He really loves the idea of these pastiche characters crossing over between universes. And one of the first times he gets a chance to do it is in the Defenders, where... Uh, the uh, Earth uh, that is, you know, the, the, the Earth of Squadron Supreme has once again been taken over, in this case, by the Overmind. And uh, it turns out in the downtime that we didn't see anything happening for them, uh, Nighthawk on this world has retired. Mm. So, like, their Bruce Wayne has retired and ran for president mm. and became president, nice. right? So he's kind of quit the team and is now actually, like, running the country. And Overmind's basically like a brainiac pastiche, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, he's a he, he's he's like the stranger, right? He's like one of those guys who's like, I am in fact the you know combined psychic essence of an entire planet full of mentalists, basically, and mm -hmm. so he has like super awesome mental powers, and uh, so he shows up and basically mind controls President Richmond, you know, President Nighthawk, basically, mm -hmm. uh, and then through him the rest of the um, Squadron Supreme. And so we get to meet a whole bunch more new Squadron Supreme members who are, you know, like even more uh, Justice League members get their own versions of them. We meet Power Princess, who is Wonder Woman, Surprising because Wonder Woman hadn't all. been on the just in the Justice League in the seventies. Right. Uh, we meet Arcana, who is Zatanna. Mm -hmm. We meet Nuke, who is Firestorm. And now that uh, Clint has gone back to being Hawkeye on our Earth, their Hawkeye has also changed his name and is now the Golden Archer. Hmm. Uh, and so we meet all of those guys. They are all mind-controlled by the Overmind, except for Hyperion. He's the only one who resists them. And they take over the Earth, and Hyperion comes to our Earth, desperate to find some allies to help him fight like an Earth that's been conquered by the Justice League, right? Like the, the Squadron Supreme have taken over the world at this point. Uh, so he has to come to our Earth to get a team together to, to help. He goes looking for the Avengers, but at the time the Avengers aren't there. But Scarlet Witch and Vision are hanging out with the Defenders at this point. So like the best he can do is kind of like throw together a team of Defenders, which actually turns out to be a pretty powerful team because they've got now Doctor Strange and the Hulk and Silver Surfer are also on that team, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, a pretty solid group that he puts together. They go back to Earth Supreme uh, and fight the entire, you know, like lineup basically of the Squadron Supreme and do in fact actually save the day. Uh, 
they, you know, it turns out that the Overmind itself has been like, you know, taken over by a demon and a bunch of other wacky stuff goes on. Uh, but they do in fact save the day and the Squadron Supreme kind of like commit themselves now to rebuilding the world, right? Because they really screwed up the planet while they were running it. Uh, you know, they like were, you know, closed all the businesses, the economy came to a halt and they were, you know, planning to conquer other worlds. So like everything that they were doing was uh, uh, put into building giant weapons and spaceships that the Overmind wanted to use to take over other planets. People are starving across the planet. The entire you know economy has collapsed, etc. And so the squad, the last time we see them, the Squadron Supreme are like, "Well, we've got a big job ahead of us to you know fix the Earth." Thanks, Defenders, you know, and the Defenders leave. Um, and so again, we don't see them again for a few years. This is when Mark Grunwald gets involved, mm -hmm. and Mark Grunwald writes a limited series in 1986, and then a follow-up graphic novel in 1989 based just on these guys right now it's not it, this is going to be the first time they appear by themselves and it's going to be uh like an in-depth study of these characters as though once again it's like you know the the with hyperion being superman as if he were a marvel character right like he's we're going to go deep into what these characters are about and what they're like and so in the 12 issue limited series that runs 86 to 87 Gruenwald really gets down and gritty into you know like each of these characters and this truly screwed up world that they've that's their fault right, right. that they you know when they, when they were controlling the earth so uh their wonder woman power princess basically talks most of the team into saying you know what in order to take in order to save this earth in order to rebuild it we need to be completely in charge. We need to take over. And we'll show you how to make, you know, I've lived on in a paradise, right? Like I've lived on Paradise Island for 80 years. I know how to do this. If you guys will just follow me, we will restore the planet and put it back and bring everybody back to, you know, like happiness. And then we'll step down, right? We only need to take over the world for, for good and for a small period. Right. Um, of course, this starts a big fight among the team of whether that's a good idea. And Nighthawk and uh, Amphibian say, no, we're not doing that, right? Like the, the Batman and Aquaman both say, this is such a terrible idea that we'll quit the team rather than participate in this. But everybody else goes along with it. And so they do. They basically, you know, the, the, the government has collapsed. So everybody's pretty much happy to have them in charge. They all reveal their secret identities and then set about basically taking over the world as good guys. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, entire epic basically goes on over the course of it. A bunch of characters die. Uh, a bunch of characters kind of like turn on each other. There's all this interesting stuff about the nature of... Uh, you know, of, of, of whether what the role of a superhero in society should be, right? Mm -hmm. And like what the kind of like the logical end of different philosophies of being a superhero turn out to be. And of course, in the end, it all goes terribly wrong. They all wind up turning on each other. There's a massive battle at the end that kills off half of the team. All of this stuff just, uh, you know, like ends very badly. But it's a brilliantly written series. Mm -hmm. It's one of kind of like the definitive 1980s you know, storylines, right? It's like right around the same time that Watchmen and Dark Knight and a bunch of other stuff are coming out. And frankly, I will put it right there with those as one of kind of like the great studies of what a superhero is actually about. I agree with you. Like uh, later on, so 
you know, later on we'll get more limited series where they kind of take, where we get to see them take like the Justice League, but like different, right? We'll see like with a, a nail and all that, or uh, what Justice League, the nail and like. Uh, yeah, right. Earth. DC DC will do that kind of like alternate Earth story first, but this is kind of the one of the first times that storyline happens. Right, and it happened. That's the cool thing about these pastiche characters, and and why I've always kind of wished that uh, we could see DC do more with these same things because the squadron supreme has uh a lot of freedom since they don't have to stay aligned with our universe they can really change the world and the right. world around them and what it what what would the world look like when exactly yeah take these stories to their logical extremes uh -huh. right so anyway in the in the graphic novel in the death of a universe graphic novel at the end of it having saved the world and stepped down the remainder of the team uh, basically wind up in this cosmic crisis and wind up in our universe, right? At the end of the, the graphic novel. And so they become part of the supporting cast of a couple of series. They fight the Avengers a couple more times. They're part of the Quasar, uh, you know, kind of like setting. They wind up uh, being um, Project Pegasus is trying to figure out a way to return them to their universe, etc. Um, and this takes a while to happen. Eventually, they get back to their universe, and Len Kaminsky writes a story called New World Order, which basically kind of like catches them up to where the Justice League actually is in DC at the time, right? It kind of like it's a it's a rewrite that kind of like brings them to. Uh, the point where they're back at like the traditional seven lineup that the Justice League in DC had returned to. Um, in order to do that, we have to have, you know, like the, the we meet the uh, Squadron Supreme version of Robin who has taken over uh, the Nighthawk role. And, you know, we bring back Aquaman, we bring back the Martian Manhunter, a bunch of, you know, craziness goes on in the course of the story. But uh, so that team kind of like reforms in New World Order and finally kind of like saves the world one more time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the last time that version, the last time that kind, that team of the Squadron Supreme have appeared in comics is in an Exiles story in 2006. The Exiles visit their world one more time uh, and kind of like team up with them and have some adventures uh, uh, there. Excellent. But, is an excellent story on its own right. Uh, yes, it is. Files. Yeah, but it's the last time we see that version because we're going to see other versions of them that are going to kind of replace them, basically. Yep. So we're going to go back because, like, what happened to the Sinisters, right? Like, what happened to the bad guy versions of them? Mm -hmm. uh, well, they kind of stayed in the Marvel Universe, right? Like, these guys continued to kick around for a while. Uh, they become The next time they appeared after their appearance in the, that first Avengers story is in a Defenders story in 1974 where they have become the henchmen of an alien called Nebulon. And Nebulon wants to, uh, he wants to uh, terraform the Earth for his species, which involves basically like melting the ice caps and flooding it because his species breathes underwater. So he has to flood the entire planet. And he manages to convince the evil members of the Squadron Sinister to be his henchmen in doing this. Well, Nighthawk of that team kind of is not really deeply into the idea of flooding the Earth. He likes the Earth, and frankly, he's not really that bad a guy compared to the other three members of the team who are basically either insane or just straight-out evil. Uh, and so he betrays that team to the Defenders. Once again, he tries to get the Avengers' help, but like in failing to do so, accidentally comes across the Defenders. And 
uh, gets Submariner and the Hulk and Doctor Strange and Valkyrie basically to uh, you know to take on this team, and they defeat the the uh, the villains, the Squadron Sinister, and Nighthawk winds up joining the team. So the Nighthawk, who is in fact uh, a member of the Defenders from that point on. Uh, is in fact that guy. He is, uh, you know, the, the alternate Batman, basically, that was created by the Grandmaster. Um, he becomes a hero for years, becomes a member of the Defenders for a long time, dies in the Defenders, then get, comes back to life later on, and he's still kicking around mm -hmm. the Marvel Universe various places as an occasionally showing up good guy. Yep. The other three all become recurring villains. Uh, the Power Prism which is the equivalent of the power ring basically for Dr. Spectrum keeps taking different people. So there's like five different guys who become Dr. Spectrum over the course of the next 20 years. Um, and, you know, every time it shows up, there's like a big new situation, a big new problem. None of them really stick as characters, but it's kind of like a cool recurring, you know, plot device. Basically it's like anytime you need a new, a new supervillain created while well, the power prism just grabs a new guy and they're off to the races. Mm -hmm. Uh, the evil wizard changes his name, finally decides that wizard is not really an awesome name for, you know, somebody operating today, uh, and becomes speed demon and basically becomes a Spider-Man villain. And he's appeared off and on in Spider-Man over and over again of the, over the last 30 years. He's a member of one of the sinisters. I can't remember. Yeah, he is. Remember, right. Definitely a member of one of the sinisters. Absolutely. Yeah. He hangs out with like the beetle and those guys and, mm -hmm. you know, and evil Hyperion, like I said, he appears several times solo he actually shows up in the squadron supreme graphic novel uh and in, in a plot twist halfway through the story kind of like replaces the good guy hyperion uh for a bit and then the two of them battle each other and evil hyperion is killed and good guy hyperion is actually blinded in that fight and remains blind for the rest of his uh his operation <laughs> um so other versions of the squadron sinister do appear several times. I mean, that, that group kind of like basically stops, you know, working together as a group. The Grandmaster creates a new alternate version of the team in order to fight the Thunderbolts at one point, and they just show up the one time and then are gone again. Another um, and then, series uh, that yeah. like, how does Baron, uh, answering the question of how would Baron Zemo fight Hyperion? Um, right, yes, very, exactly, very yeah. So, but that's unfortunately only appear the one time. And then there also, there is a section of the 2015 secret wars uh, in the, the battle world that is created mm -hmm. there, the, the alternate earth that is created there. A section of it is actually being run by an alternate earth version of the squadron sinister. And again, they only appear for a few pages, but it's at least kind of nice to see them. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2003, uh, Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski and Gary Frank take that concept of the Squadron Supreme and basically start over entirely with their new version of what if Marvel had the DC characters. Uh, and that becomes kind of a separate universe unto itself with a version of Hyperion and Nighthawk and, uh, you know, the, the other assorted uh, characters on, you know, on the team, uh, all being run by Straczynski. For a long section of it, it's basically the Hyperion story, right? It's like it's basically like a, a retelling of Superman that Straczynski is able to do under the Marvel uh, aegis, right? Um, but eventually, Bendis uh, come, comes in and winds up taking over. They cross over with the Ultimate Marvel Universe. 
Um, and those characters are eventually all killed off by Namor and the Cabal uh, or during the, all the, the Illuminati run. Uh, and then we meet another version of them, another extra dimensional version of them who discover that they were killed by Namor and try to get their revenge. And this team eventually goes to work for the U.S. government and they fight the Avengers some more and they're still kicking around the universe. I think there was a stretch where Phil Coulson in the Marvel universe was like leading their team during a time that the Avengers weren't getting along with the government. Yep. And so the Squadron Supreme were actually sent to arrest them at one point. Uh, also during the Marvel Zombies run, there's yet another version of these guys who are in fact actually zombified by the zombie virus and uh, you know wind up fighting everybody as part of that entire kind of like Megillah. Yeah. So we have all of these multiple alternate versions of the Squadron uh, Supreme at this point that are kind of out there kicking around. This joke is a very reliable one, I'm sure. We will have more of them as time goes on because Marvel just cannot leave these guys alone. Um, Hyperion in particular, uh, is a character who has keeps showing up over and over in different places because the idea of Marvel Superman is one that they can't leave alone, right? right. Yeah. Power so okay. Uh, so this is the you know that that's the Marvel version of DC. Did DC ever, in fact, actually try to do the same thing with Marvel? You say, <laughs> and I say yes. In fact, they have, going all the way back to 1971. Right. Uh, you know, they had just done Roy Thomas had just done the first time the Squadron Supreme appears. Uh, and Mike Thomas was friends with uh, Roy Thomas. I'm sorry, was friends with Mike Friedrich. They were, you know, good buddies and certainly kind of like talked about uh, the plots that they were working on. Uh, they both lived in Greenwich Village and hung out a lot. And so Mike Friedrich takes up the challenge, basically, from, from Roy and says, okay, I'm going to do the same kind of thing that Roy is doing with the Avengers. I've got a gig writing the Justice League now. I'm going to put a version of the Avengers in the Justice League. And so in Justice League number 87, uh, Justice League Earth is attacked by a giant robot, and the heroes de defeat the robot. And head out into space, they like track the alien planet that it came from. And they're like, we got to go to that planet and figure out who is sending giant robots to try to kill us and, you know, stop them from ever doing it again. Well, a giant robot also attacked another planet called Angor. And Angor is basically the Marvel Universe in the DC system. It's not even a parallel Earth at this time. It's literally another planet mm -hmm. out there in space somewhere. And uh, they also were attacked by a giant robot and fended it off and defeated it and headed to this same planet that it came from to see where it was. So like the Justice League and the Avengers, who at this point are called the, the Justifiers, uh, wind up on the same planet. And of course, there is a misunderstanding. They each think the other one is responsible for sending the robots. So they get into a fight, eventually figure out that it's not, you know, it wasn't either of them, that they were both attacked and turn on the giant computer on this planet that is in fact sending the robots. Um, and so in this story, we meet uh, Wangina, who is the Australian god of weather and thunder and lightning. Okay. Uh, and this incredibly cosmically powerful guy. Blue Jay, who can shrink and fly around. Jack B. Quick, who is super fast. And the Silver Sorceress, who has weird kind of magical powers. So obviously we are meeting, you know, Thor, Yellow Jacket, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. It's a weird. It's a weird team of Avengers that they chose there. It really kind of is, and there's. I don't think there's ever, in fact, an actual Avengers story with just those four guys in it. But those are the ones yeah. that Friedrich happened to like and thought would be interesting to have. 
Okay. And the Thor never really is around during the um, the silver, the uh, Scarlet Witch and uh, Quicksilver. Like at least not right. Like when it's a small team. Right. And this is before, right? This is all happened. The, the story it was set during a time like before the uh, Kree Scroll Wars, right? So right. it's that Avengers lineup would have been the published one at the time. Yeah. Um, but he really wanted to have a Thor version because once again, we'd, you know, what's the point of having a the Justice League Avengers fight if Superman and Thor don't punch, right? right. So, absolutely. So, anyway, this was not nearly as well received, it was not considered as interesting or as funny as the Squadron Supreme. So, these guys don't show up again for a long time. And in fact, the next time they come, they show up is 1987. It's after the crisis. It's in Justice League International, uh, and it's in a story written by Keith Given and our old buddy, J.M. Demetis, who once again loves this gag right. and will use it over and over again. And he says, we should bring back those, the, 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 the fake Marvel guys. Let's have them show up in our series. Except now they've changed their backstory. Now Angor is not a planet out in space. It is, of course, an alternate Earth. Right, it's a it's another version of our Earth, dimensionally separated. Right, and in this story, we now learn that there was a horrible nuclear war on the Justifier's homeworld, uh, and it killed almost everybody. Oh. And in fact, the only survivors of this world are basically that world's versions of Thor, Yellow Jacket, and Scarlet Witch. So, Wangina, Blue uh, Blue Jay, and the Silver Sorceress are the only survivors of their Earth. Of, of Angor. And they are so horrified by everything that has happened and by the terrible nuclear accidents of this that they decide while they're stuck on our earth, they can't go back to their own. What they need to do is save us from the idea of having a nuclear war. So they will just go around and destroy every nuclear power plant and every missile and everything to save us, to protect us, because they've seen what it's like. Right. So it's this is, you know, this is a Reagan era, uh, you know, Cold War paranoia, you know, kind of like story where it's like the heroes are absolutely committed to ending the Cold War, uh, whether we like it or not. Right. And so the Justice League find themselves in the unfortunate situation of having to, like, defend America's nuclear stockpile. Right. Uh, so, okay, this is, this is interesting. And the heroes do in fact, actually, uh, the, the justice league manages to stop them, but we have an interesting moral dilemma. And in fact, Wangina dies in order to stop a nuclear explosion from happening. He literally like flies into a nuclear power plant that's having a meltdown. And it turns out that much radiation, that sort of thing can even kill a God, right? So he in fact actually dies from nuclear poisoning. Uh, but that kind of like brings an end to the conflict. We almost went to war with Russia over this. The Rocket Reds all show up and a bunch of stuff happens. Um, and so Blue Jay and uh, Silver Sorceress are stuck on our world. And the Justice League kind of like recognizes that they're good guys and, you know, should be helpful, even if they have this kind of like stick up their butts about nuclear power. Uh, and so welcome them into the Justice League. And they wind up being members of the Justice League for two or three years. Uh, you know, just as kind of like secondary uh, members of the team. Mm -hmm. And in this story, we learn that uh, the nuclear Holocaust also killed their Quicksilver, who we had met, but they decide Jack B. Quick is kind of a dumb name, and he is now referred to as Captain Speed. And then we also meet uh, in the flashback, we meet a character called Bowman, who is clearly supposed to be Hawkeye, right? right? Uh, and then we have brief one-panel appearances of two other characters who are called Tin Man and the Bug. 
<laughs> who are very obviously Iron Man and Spider-Man. And they also die in this horrible nuclear war. Uh, and so they, you know, just kind of like go about, they are now new members of the Justice League. Uh, we then meet a supervillain team who are in fact uh, also from Angor and are the reason the nuclear war happened. It turns out the nuclear war was in fact the responsibility of, was caused by a team of villains from that world who are called the extremists. And the extremists are all really obvious pastiche versions of well-known Marvel bad guys, right? So you have Lord Havoc is their leader, who is an armored bad guy who seems an awful lot like Dr. Doom. And you have a mighty sorcerer called Dreamslayer, who looks an awful lot and acts an awful lot like Dormammu. You've got a magnetism-powered guy uh, called Dr. Diehard, who seems an awful lot like Magneto. We've got a guy with tentacles coming out of his head, in his case, for it, uh, called Gorgon, who is very obviously Dr. Octopus. And you've got a guy who's like this wild man with you know sharp teeth and claws and the ability to like track anybody with his superhuman senses called Tracer, who looks an awful lot like Sabretooth. And these guys are the extremists. This is the villain team that shows up. And when they first arrive, they kick the snot out of the Justice League, right? They're a terrifying collection of bad guys. They're way more powerful than the current lineup of the Justice League, and they really kick them around for quite a while. Um, at one point during the story, Silver Sorceress is sent back to the wreckage-strewn world of, uh, of Angor and is placed in a uh, kind of like amusement park style prison that is run by a guy named Carney, who is very clearly supposed to be Arcade, who is apparently also a member of the, uh, of the extremists. It is revealed over the course of these stories that in fact, not all of these villains survived the nuclear war. In fact, all of them died except for Dreamslayer, the Dormammu character who could not be killed by nukes. That's just not in his, you know, a thing that he would be worried about. No. Uh, and so he, recreated the extremists by basically visiting their world's version of Disney World, where there were a bunch of animatronic statues of the villains, of the actual like extremists, uh, that had been created by their version of Walt Disney, whose name was Mitch Wacky for Wacky World. And he used his magic to turn those animatronic statues into the extremists. Uh, and kind of like recreated them, basically. But the only one who was real was uh, Dreamslayer. And so the Justice League finally figures out that if we take out Dreamslayer, the rest of them will just stop working, right? So that's kind of like they're in to like actually defeating them is that they only have to beat one of these guys, right? And they can just kind of gang up on him and that will stop all of the other ones from operating because they don't even know that they're not real, right? Like they're still operating under this, uh, the the magical spell that Dreamslayer has cast on them. Mm -hmm. So this all goes on for a bit. This is, you know, I'm covering like a year and a half of plots here for, for Justice League while this happens. In the end of it, uh, Dreamslayer is killed and then comes back and then is killed again. Uh, Silver Sorceress is killed. Blue Jay, as far as I know, is still alive somewhere in the DC universe. I don't know if he like made it through, hmm. you know, the new 52 or Flashpoint or anything like that. I don't think anybody's used him in a long time. But he was never officially like killed off, right? He was never, you know, we never see a death scene for him. So he might still be out there. Uh, in the 2000s, these guys come back, uh, you know, kind of like post all of the reboots here for this. The, the extremists get a limited series of their own uh, in 2007. And then in Multiversity, uh, they become parts of Earth 7 and 8 are basically uh, dedicated to these characters, are basically like the Earth. Marvels of the DC Universe on Grant Morrison's write-ups. Neat. 
Apparently, I just looked it up. Uh, Blue Jay uh, survived until just now uh, with Heroes in Crisis, and he was one of the ones. Who- oh, is he one of the guys who dies there? He does. You see his corpse being eaten by crows. Dude. <laughs> I didn't need to know that. Well, thank you for sharing. That was a piece of crap series. Okay. <laughs> that was an all, oh, God, so bad. You know, uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> RIP Blue Jay. That's terrible. <laughs> um, that's, that's really funny. Okay. So anyway, on earth eight, we get to like find out all about the, uh, in multiversity, we learn all about the good guys of that world, right? Like we actually see the full run. Now the assemblers and justifiers have been changed. Now their name is the retaliators, mm-hmm. which is once again, a terrible superhero name, but you know, Avengers is kind of weird too, if you think about it that way, but we learn that there's a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, DC versions of the Marvel characters on earth eight. There's the future family who are basically the fantastic four led by Frank future. There's the G-Men, there's American Crusader. There's just a whole bunch of, uh, you know, like versions of all of these characters. Uh, maybe we'll put a list up in the, uh, you know, in the show notes or something if you actually want to, like, track all this stuff down. My favorite is definitely Red Dragon as a Black Widow uh, pastiche. Like, that's just yeah. the name. Right? Our, our communist secret agent? Yeah. Bad guy? <laughs> yeah. In 2005, Superman and Batman were traveling through a bunch of parallel earths, and they ran into yet another parallel earth that looked an awful lot like Marvel earth um, in which they fought a team who were called the maximums Mm -hmm. who were kind of more like the ultimate Avengers, like the ultimates Mm -hmm. uh, than they were the, you know, mainstream traditional Avengers. And basically all I can say about them is they're super boring and it's a bad story. So I don't actually care anymore about them. Won't go into any more detail. However, I will point out that JM Demetis is not done with that joke of let's do, let's do versions of each of those Marvel characters in Justice League uh, because they go back to that gag over and over again, most notably when they create the DC versions of both Galactus and the Silver Surfer in their Justice League stories as Mr. Nebula and the Scarlet Skier. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're played for laughs because it's, you know, the Justice League and it's Demetis and Giffen, but they are both also kind of, you know, like parts of the universe. Mr. Nebula is traveling around, uh, you know, destroying planets, etc. And he sends his herald on skis to go, uh, you know, check worlds out and that kind of thing for this. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Mitch, uh, what's his name? Uh, Max Lord uh, is able to talk Mr. Nebula out of it uh, by making a trade with him. It's a complicated story. But anyway, that's the, you know, that that's the main DC version of of like the the Marvel, you know, uh, uh, heroes. Mm-hmm. The other notable pastiche that we should probably talk about in here for this is the Imperial Guard. And this is another time where Marvel is kind of like taking the piss from DC. Uh, the Imperial Guard are the superheroes of the Shi'ar, of the Empire, alien empire that's kind of like a key uh, part of the X-Men mythos, right? It's They're ruled off and on again by Lalandra, who is Professor X's girlfriend, uh, and we meet these characters multiple times. The first time they show up, this was a story that was done by Chris Claremont, and Dave Cockrum was the main artist on X-Men at the time. Uh, Dave Cockrum, before he had done any Marvel work, before he came over to work on X-Men, had been the main artist on the Legion of Superheroes for DC for years and was one of the definitive Legion of Superheroes artists. He created all of kind of like the modern versions of their costumes and everything and was just loved the Legion. He was sad to go uh, when he kind of like uh, had to, you know, 
come work over at Marvel. Mm -hmm. And in fact, two of the X-Men that he co-designed came from his designs for new Legionnaires who never appeared. Really? Right. Like he sent to DC management to editorial several sketches and versions of new characters that he wanted to either add to the Legion or to create a new team like the Heroes of Lalor or something who would be a rival team to the Legion. One of them is this tiny little blue furred weird alien with three fingers and a tail who could teleport uh, called Nightcrawler. And he basically ported him over to the X-Men directly because DC turned it down. DC did not want this character. And so he gave it to Marvel instead, and it became Nightcrawler, one of the most popular you know, characters Marvel ever had. Um, and then he had two other members of his team. One, uh, I, we're not quite sure what he looked like because we, the sketches don't survive, but we know that he had weather powers. And then we had an African-American heroine who was going to be like a werecat, right? Who could like transform into a cat and like her eyes were like cat-like and everything. Uh, and she would have claws and super dexterity and, and all of that. And so that characters were also rejected. And so Cockrum basically smushed those two characters together, took the look of the Catwoman character with her white hair and black skin and a you know black costume and everything and the powers of the weather controlling character and made a new character called Storm. And so Storm and Nightcrawler basically were meant to be Legionnaires before they were X-Men. Uh, so they have always kind of like been tied together be through Dave Cockrum, who was so involved in the creation of both of them. And so when the, the X-Men had to go off into space and deal with the Shi'ar, uh, you know, their, their empire, basically, we learned that the Shi'ar have an entire superhero team of their own uh, who are called the Imperial Guard, and they work for Lilandra, and they are, you know, all impressively superpowered aliens from all across the galaxy, and they are all each one of individually, each one of them is a ripoff of a member of the Legion of Superheroes, right? So you have this lead character who is called Gladiator, and he's the leader of the Imperial Guard, and he can fly, and he has incredible super strength and a really awesome mohawk, et cetera, but he has a cape and, and all of that. And his actual name, his real name, is Kalark, mm -hmm. like Kal-El and Clark, right, basically, because he's basically the Marvel version of Superboy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have a bunch of other characters who are themselves all takes on various legionnaires. You have Electron, who's Lightning Lad. You have Mentor, who's Brainiac 5. You have Fang, who is... Uh, Timberwolf, who over the course of that story actually like winds up Wolverine takes Fang out and wears his costume and disguises himself as him because they look so similar. Right. Right. That's them kind of like taking the piss of saying, you know, like your version of Timberwolf and, and Wolverine is kind of just a ripoff of Timberwolf, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know. Uh, so, you know, for a while, uh, Wolverine actually wore Fang's costume uh, in the in the series. So anyway, there's like 15 of them or so. Uh, once again, maybe we'll put this list up on the you know on the show notes or whatever if you want to actually check them out. And we'll talk more about so them when we do. That sure. gag only lasts for the length of time Cockrum is the artist, right? Because every appearance that we've done by the uh, Imperial Guard since then, Claremont and whoever the artist is at the time introduced new characters who are not themselves Legion pastiches. Right, because it was basically Dave Cockrum's joke. Mm -hmm. So since Cockrum's not involved anymore, they don't really do that joke anymore. And Gladiator's really the only one of them who spends a lot of time, gets a lot of kind of airtime, basically. Um, I know Smasher was a member of the Avengers briefly, 
during a set of stories. And Smasher is basically Ultra Boy. In fact, his uh, the 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 symbol that he wears on his chest looks like a uh, a letter in Interlac, the same way that Ultra Boy's is like it's supposed to be a U in Interlac, right? So. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll end up talking more about Smasher when we do our history of uh, Weird Avengers. When we do the Weird Avengers, right, exactly. So anyway, that's a, that's a joke that no longer really kind of applies anymore, but for the, those first appearances of the Imperial Guard are basically all the Legion. Uh, the other time, another time I want to talk about uh, quickly on this, because I want to drag this on too long, right. there is a, in 1977, there was a crossover between DC and Marvel, once again, involving the writers who were friends. Roy Thomas uh, is uh, writing The Invaders at this point, uh, and Bob Rosakis is writing uh, The Freedom Fighters. Neither of these are particularly, they're both definitely kind of like well down the tier of titles. You know, they're, neither of their sales were that great at that point. And they're both friends with Tony Isabella, who is also a comic book writer, who's the creator of Black Lightning and several other things. And literally the three of them are out having dinner at one point. And Tony Isabella basically makes the joke suggesting that they should do another crossover where like there will be the freedom fighters and the invaders will meet each other except they won't really they'll each be fighting pastiche versions of each other in the course of the story and to make the joke work even better both versions of the pastiche teams will be called the crusaders right so the invaders will fight a team called the crusaders who are basically made up of the freedom fighters and the freedom fighters will fight a team called the crusaders who are basically made up of the invaders and Roy and, uh, and, and Bob say, this is hilarious. We should totally do that. And in the summer of 1977, they do. Three issues of each of their respective comics are dedicated to these battles uh, where the, uh, the invaders fight the, their version of the Crusaders who turn out to be uh, Nazi dupes. Uh, and the Freedom Fighters fight a team of the Crusaders who are, you know, Americommando and Fireball and Barracuda, and they're all very clearly versions of the Invaders. Uh, DC never used theirs again, right? Like the, the, the DC version of the Crusaders only appeared in those three issues and were gone at that point. Uh, but Roy liked the Marvel version of the Crusaders well enough that he kept using a bunch of their characters in later issues of the Invaders. Um, and so the spirit of 76, who was their version of Uncle Sam from the Freedom Fighters, actually winds up being one of the guys who replaces Captain America for a while uh, before he gets killed on the job. And their version of Dollman, who was called Dynamite, uh, actually becomes a recurring character and is still appearing, was still appearing as recently as Thunderbolts, um, where he was part of the V Battalion. So... For what that's worth, that's a uh, crossover that like happened between those two. That was, you know, you should check them out. It's kind of they're they're a fun set of stories. Sounds awesome. The uh, invaders always were kind of fun stories that never really sold very well. Yeah. So we can now. Those are kind of like the big teams. Those are the big event characters that we can. We can also talk about a few characters uh, quickly who were uh, themselves in some way kind of like pastiche versions individually. Uh, famously, for example. Jim Starlin uh, was designing a new bad guy to appear in Iron Man, which he was writing at the time for this. And he had read Jack Kirby's New Gods uh, and was deeply into it, thought it was a, an, an excellent series, and basically created a new bad guy uh, who looked kind of like and acted kind of like Mobius 
from the new gods who to be a new bad guy in in iron man um and the editor roy thomas was the editor of course at the time for this uh went to him and said you know what if you're gonna rip off a new god if you're gonna rip off jack kirby you should rip off the cool one right <laughs> yeah. so you should change your guy so he's more like dark side than like mobius because frankly mobius is kind of lame and dark side's incredibly cool and nobody's using dark side for anything so why don't you use uh why don't you change your character to be more like dark side and starlin said yeah okay i'll do that and basically creates thanos right that's this is where thanos appears right thanos was originally going to just be sitting in a chair like mobius kind of like flying around but they decided to make him more dark side like and so thanos is just really existed his first appearances anyway are really he's basically dark side um they went obviously a very different directions with the characters afterwards for it but this is the very first appearance of him um him, uh, he does do the like sits back in his throne and sort of like you know uh mobius-esque uh you know uh sits and uh taunts people sometimes so right yeah we do see that that influence still bleed through yeah but his throne doesn't really fly around or anything. that's true it does not yeah but it's, it's not, not really his visual look yeah similarly uh, so, uh, Fabian Nicheza and Rob Liefeld are writing, uh, X-Force in 1991. And Nicheza tells Rob, we're going to need a bad guy coming up in the story coming up. He's got to be a mercenary villain, uh, you know, who's, uh, you know, kind of like really fast and he's really good with weapons. He should be good with guns and swords, you know, sit down and come up with a design and we'll figure out what we're going to do with him. But I'm, I'm letting you know a few months in advance to start working on this. And so Rob Liefeld sits down and he starts designing a character and the, he certainly knew I've read him being interviewed about this later where he said, I'd heard of the teen Titans. I'd never written on them or anything. And I didn't really know their characters that well. So I designed this character and you know, he's got swords, he's got katanas crossed on the back and he's got guns and he's got a full face mask and everything and i draw him and he sends him to fabian uh Nichesa, and Nichesa says congratulations you've reinvented deathstroke <laughs> right that you this is basically deathstroke he's way too close we can't actually use him and and rob is just like i don't even know who deathstroke is i'm sorry i didn't mean to you know like rip your guy off uh but okay you know let's go ahead and make this change in the art and that change will you know like design so it becomes clear that he's not Deathstroke, right? Mm -hmm. it's, but Liefeld was so entertained by the idea that he'd almost stolen a, D, uh, a DC character that he basically created Deadpool as a series of jokes about Deathstroke, right? Like as they filled in all of these details about him, he kept making Deathstroke references because he thought it was funny that he'd almost ripped them off, right? Mm -hmm. So Deadpool as a name is basically a reference to Deathstroke, right? Like stroke mm -hmm. in a pool, like you're swimming, you know, kind of joke. Um, and uh, Deadpool's real name is Wade Wilson, which is a, obviously a reference to Deathstroke's real name of being Slade Wilson. Right. Right. So even though these are two characters who now are completely different and have nothing in common with each other for this, mm -hmm. everything about Deadpool, all of his kind of like original character concept is Rob Liefeld making fun of himself for like not, you know, for creating a character, basically accidentally recreating Deathstroke. <laughs> There are two I'd actually really like to see. If we ever got more Marvel DC crossovers, I would love to see. Have them interact with each other, yeah. yeah it'd be hilarious until, uh, you know, a couple panels until Deathstroke shoot, tries to kill Deadpool. I was going to say, until Deathstroke killed him a lot, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
there's another character uh, who was kind of important for the Superman stories in the 90s, um, whose uh, name was Hank Henshaw. And Hank Henshaw in the Superman stories was the leader of a team of scientists and uh, explorers and basically who headed off into space. Uh, and during a time that the sun was giving off strange waves of radiation and those strange waves of radiation transformed uh, the, mem the, the members of this team, the crew of this ship, turning them into horrible monsters uh, who had superpowers. Basically, one of them was, you know, uh, radioactive and giving off terrible radiation. And one of them had turned into a giant, horrible monster. And one was like, could walk through walls, but was fading away. All of their powers were killing themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they very clearly became the Fantastic Four and Hank Henshaw was the leader of the team as Reed Richards. Uh, Superman fails to save the rest of the team. They all in fact actually die tragically, but Hank Henshaw is saved and actually then goes on using his powers to become the cyborg Superman, right? So the, the cyborg Superman who appeared after Apocalypse kills Superman basically for him is in fact DC's version of Mr. Fantastic, uh, you know, kind of found another use for him as a character and wound up changing him. But if you look back at his origin, he very clearly has the Fantastic Four's origin as a, uh, as a pastiche character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel has tried to rip off Superman a hundred times. Right. Superman is kind of like the one iconic character type, the one iconic archetype, basically, uh, that uh, there isn't really a good Marvel equivalent, right? Depending on the kind of story that you want to tell, sometimes Captain America can be Superman-like, mm -hmm. sometimes Thor can be Superman-like, et cetera. But really none of them kind of match that. And the idea of this kind of, you know, like caped Titan whose powers are just so far beyond everybody else's uh, and is this example character, there isn't one in Marvel and Marvel keeps trying to use ones, right? Mm -hmm. um, the most kind of notable ones you would think would probably be the Sentry and Blue Marvel, mm -hmm. um, both of which are still themselves kind of like twists on the Superman idea, right? Like in that Sentry is A, insane, and you know is actually secretly the you know repository of a horrible extra-dimensional marble uh, monster, and Blue Marvel is of course well. What if Superman was black, and we decided that it wasn't such a great idea for him to be operating as a superhero back in the fifties and sixties? Right. Um, so both of those are kind of takes on Superman. You can only have one of them: Sentry, Blue Marvel, or Hyperion. You take it. Right. Yeah. Take your pick. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the last one I want to kind of quickly mention is there was a brief period, of course, when Marvel outright stole a DC character who had just died. And this was in the days immediately after, or not really immediately, it's a couple of years after, uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths, where Barry Allen, the Flash, had died very notably and publicly. Uh, and so, uh, you know, DC had replaced him with Wally West, and there was a new Flash and everything. And unlike a lot of the characters in crisis when they died they were kind of erased from history barry allen had not been erased from history everybody knew that he died and so he was kind of this you know like recurring concept you know in the, in the backstories of other characters talking about the death of barry allen and how tragic and everything that it was well in quasar that mark gruenwald was running um a new character suddenly appeared in the marvel universe uh, who was completely amnesiac, but he was this tall blonde guy who could move at incredible super speed, right? 
And so there were all of these kind of like running jokes about this character because Gruenwald was dropping all of these hints that in fact, Barry Allen had not died in the crisis, but in fact had just switched over to the Marvel universe. <laughs> right. And so all he knew about himself was that he was apparently an alien to this world. He wasn't from this world and he'd been buried underground. Like people thought he was dead, but then he dug himself up. <laughs> so he refers to himself several times over the course of the story as the buried alien <laughs> instead of Barry Allen, right? Nice. For this, this, this running character. And that story, that joke went on for years. Right. Eventually, he became a, a an actual superhero. Changed his name. Took on a superhero uh, identity with the name of Fast Forward, uh, and you know, kind of ran through most of the second half of Grunwald's Quasar run without ever kind of like copping to the joke, right? Without ever like admitting that that's what they had done, but making it really clear to the audience that this was Mark Grunwald literally stealing a character from the DC universe and kind of like defying them to do something about it. <laughs> right? It's like, I dare you to come over here and like make a, make a stink out of this. Uh, but it's kind of like the, the great, uh, you know, like pastiche character that maybe wasn't even a pastiche. Maybe we actually just stole this character. So, so, so there's, there's a million other versions of these types of characters. There's obviously the thing to talk about uh, in this topic would be the amalgam universe where, you know, like DC and Marvel characters get crashed into each other, but that's way too big a topic to do inside this one and we promise that we will in fact actually do another episode someday that will just be about amalgam because that's just a huge topic to amalgam to wrestle with being one of the uh first gra the first like uh uh you know graphic novel type comics i ever bought as a kid uh really very dear yeah the first like fully compiled version of it um which i found out later does is not actually fully compiled but i thought it was when i was you know uh, <laughs> um, be, is very near and dear to my heart, despite it being, you know, kind of awful. Um, some of it's fabulous. Some, some of the jokes in it are great, yeah. and you know, I, I'll I'll defend some of it. But yes, yeah, so there is a lot of it that's really kind of clunky. <laughs> yeah, but whatever it is, it's way too big to like, you know, try to tack on here for yes. us. I think we're already it's running out of time. Yeah. Um. So thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, that was the big twos pastiches of one another. Um, have a good night. I've been Steve Tasker. This is Darren Watts. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye.